Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, in chapter 15. We have been in a series of sermons on the life of Abraham, about a month or so now, and we come this morning to chapter 15. And I'd like to ask us to read this passage in its entirety, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 through the end of the chapter. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 7. And he said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Well, there's certainly a lot going on in Genesis 15. We have one of the most important verses, actually, in the Bible. It's easy to miss it if you just read the passage as I did a moment ago, but that verse is found in verse 6, and he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Huge verse with massive implications taken up in other places in the Bible, particularly in Romans 4 and Galatians chapter 3. Furthermore, we have God entering into a covenant with Abram. We've seen that he's made promises. Now he's formalizing those promises in an actual covenant. 
And then we have this rather bizarre and mysterious ceremony that is carried on in the latter parts of chapter 15 with these various animals, the heifer and these other animals that are split in two and placed on either side. And we wonder maybe what's going on with, with all of that. But before we jump in to consider this passage, I just want to remind you uh, how this all started. I want to remind you of actually the very first sermon in this series of sermons that was preached from Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 8. It was there that God, seemingly out of nowhere, initiates a relationship with Abram. He calls Abram, who is an idol worshiper as far as we know, one who probably worshiped the moon, uh, living in Ur of the Chaldeans in Haran, and God visits him, and he calls Abram to leave his father's house, to leave his kindred, to leave his country, and to go into the place that God would show him. God reveals himself to Abram in a gracious and spectacular way. And that revelation in Genesis 12, 1 through 8, includes in seed form three particular promises, which will be the basis of the relationship between God and Abram. And we've rehearsed these promises together if you've been with us the last few weeks. God promises to Abram, first of all, land, which we've seen restated here. He's going to give land to Abram and his descendants. He promises Abram seed, particularly a son, a biological son who will come from his line. And through that son, God's going to multiply his descendants. And we see that repeated here in this passage as well. And then the third promise, and that is the promise of blessing, land, seed, blessing. And the promise is that through Abram's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the nation that comes from Abram, but rather all the families of the world, all the, the ethne, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, then we considered Abram's failure in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, as he goes down into Egypt and behaves himself in a most ignoble manner and sins greatly against God, and yet God delivers him and delivers Sarai, his wife. And then last week, Zach preached a fabulous message in chapters 13 and 14 about what was more of a triumph from, for Abram and the visitation that God gave him from the priest Melchizedek. Now we come to chapter 15, and here God is taking those initial promises that He gave to Abram that initiated this gracious relationship with Abram, and He's now formalizing a covenant with Abram. That's what we have in Genesis 15. So here's the plan for our consideration of this chapter. Today, I hope to consider the passage in its entirety, to, to familiarize us with the basic plot movements of Genesis 15, kind of a 30,000-foot view of what is happening in Genesis 15. And then next Sunday, the plan is to look just at verse 6, where it says that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. One of the things you can do, because I'm making the statement that this is one of the most important verses in the Bible, Genesis 15, 6. One of the things you can do in preparation for that message next week is to read Romans 4 and Galatians 3, and to try to understand and appreciate there how the Apostle Paul in those two places interprets Genesis 15, 6. That will be the subject matter for our time together next week, God willing. So let's consider now the narrative of Genesis 15. We'll look at the whole chapter now this morning uh, under four main points. And my four main points just follow the major developments of the narrative. Point number one, Abram expresses his doubts and his fears. Abram expresses his doubts and his fears. Look again at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, you may remember when Abram left Haran, left Ur, in Genesis 12, we read there that he was 75 years old. So he's already fairly well advanced in years. Uh, but, but, but we're not told after that in Genesis, the rest of Genesis 12 or 13 or 14 or even in chapter 15, any more time markers. It's hard to put together the chronology. The next time marker that we're given is actually in the next chapter in Genesis 16. In Genesis 16, we have the episode with Abram and Sarai and Hagar, Sarai's servant, who Abram will go into and she will conceive and they will have the child Ishmael by Hagar. We'll consider that, God willing, in a couple of weeks. And we read that after Hagar conceives and bears Ishmael that Abram is 86 years old. So if the events of Genesis 15 are close chronologically to Genesis 16, well then we might think that as God is formalizing this covenant, maybe about a decade has passed between the time when those initial promises were made to Abram. God makes the promises when Abram's 75 years old, and surely at least some amount of time, months and probably years, had to elapse for Genesis 12, 10 through 20 to take place. Abram is famine in the land. He goes down to Egypt. He comes back. And we have the whole episode where Lot and Abram in chapter 13 divide the land up between one of them. We read at that point his household is greatly increased. Chapter 14, there's that skirmish, that minor war that takes place. Surely some years have gone by between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, perhaps as much as a decade. So Abram is, 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 is some years on, I think, from the promises of Genesis 12. But the Lord comes now to Abram in a vision with a word of promise, a word to reassure Abram in the midst of his fears and doubts. The Lord says, fear not, Abram. Perhaps he knew that Abram was prone to fear what happened to the promise? Is God going to keep His word? He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I think here God is acknowledging the challenges that Abram faced, and God comes now to reassure Abram, to help Abram's faith. And I'm just going to say as an aside, isn't this what God always does in the Bible? God doesn't just give to His people one promise and say, well, I'll see you later when the promise is finally fulfilled. God is constantly, throughout the pages of Scripture, reassuring His people, restating the promises, reasserting the promises, providing illumination on the promises. God's purpose for His people and God's purpose for you, Christian, is to be reassured that the promises are true. The promises will be kept. God will keep His Word. God does not want you to be in a place of fear and doubting. God has undertaken in the 66 books of the Bible to reassure us again and again and again that His Word is true and He will accomplish His purposes for His people. And that's what God is doing here. Perhaps Abram's faith had grown weak and weary. God comes to him and He wants to reassure Abram with a word of comfort and a word of blessing. And Abram responds to the Lord by candidly sharing his doubts and his fears. And there's different ways we could interpret this. I don't think that we should view this as an instance of faithlessness on Abram's part. Abram is having a very humble and a very human response. He's acknowledging to God, even as I trust in you, I'm just missing where the promise is gone. How is it, God, that you're going to keep your word? I don't think we should see this as, as some sort of major failure on Abram's part. We read verse 2, but Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. 
Then Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So in these opening verses, we see Abram acknowledging that though he trusts in the Lord, he nonetheless struggles with doubts about how the promises will come to fulfillment. The reality is he doesn't have a child yet. Maybe we're 10 years on. God had promised to make his name great and to make him a great nation. He's wondering, when are those descendants going to come? I'm not getting any younger. And he recognizes that his heir, according to the customs of the day, would have been Eleazar of Damascus. We don't know exactly who Eleazar was. Maybe he was a distant relative. Maybe he was a servant that was sort of adopted into the household. But according to the customs of the day, at least at this point in the timeline, if Abram were to die, Eleazar would be the heir. He would be the one to take over for the family. But the material point is, Abram doesn't have a bona fide heir at this point, and he's going to leave everything to this member of his household, Eleazar. And Abram knows God has promised to give him offspring. God has promised to continue his name and to make that name great. He surely knows that this is not going to be the fulfillment of the promise. He's saying, Lord, as it stands now, Eleazar is the one who's going to inherit my household. I think he's saying, I I know this is not the fulfillment of the promise, but he's asking candidly, Lord, where has the promise gone? What, what, What has happened to the word that you gave to me? How can I know that you're going to fulfill it? And in a sense, I think Abram is asking for a sign. What can you give me to show me? That this word and this promise is going to come to fruition. And surely every Christian here who's ever struggled with any doubts can understand this this plea from Abram. Lord, I'm not asking that you do this on my timetable. I'm just asking, can you show me a sign? Can you give me some reassurance that the promise is true and that you're going to fulfill your word? So I think we should take this as a genuine cry for help from Abram though not one that is altogether void of faith. Abram expresses his doubts and fears, and he asks God for a sign. That's the first point. Abram expresses his doubts and fears. Now, secondly, what do we see next? Number two, God reasserts the promise. God reasserts the promise. Verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, referring to Eleazar, shall not be your heir, Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Here in these verses now, God reasserts the promise that he will indeed give Abram a son. God's not going to allow Abram to downgrade the promise. It's not going to be Eleazar. God could not be more clear. This man... God says, will not be your heir. Rather, God says, your very own son, a biological son born from your barren wife, Sarai, he will be your offspring. He will be your son. He will be the son of promise. The Lord promises Abram that he will, in fact, by Sarai, bear a son, and that that son will inherit his household, not this Eleazar. And God then accentuates the promise by telling Abram to look up toward heaven. And I just think this is, this is awesome. This is wonderful. You, you kids here this morning, I wonder if you've ever um, been outside late at night when it's like pitch black dark outside. Uh, so, so for a few years, I lived in the country. And when you live out in the country, you don't have as many streetlights and things like that. So I lived in this house in Easley, South Carolina. And if you went outside at night, there were no lights anywhere. 
And it was something else to walk outside on a cloudless night, no lights on in the neighborhood or anything like that, when it's very dark outside, and to just look up at the sky. You kids ever done that? Looked up at the sky at night when it's, it's dark outside? Well, what do you see? You see the stars, right? And, and if I asked you, all right, how many stars are there? I mean, what would you say? You know how many stars are in the sky? You can't number them, right? Can't number the stars. That's essentially what God does with Abram. He says, Abram, go outside. I want you to look up at the sky. Look up at the heavens, and you see all these stars, which surely it would have been quite dark there. You wouldn't have had modern streetlights and things like that. Look up at the stars, and if you could number them, I'm telling you, that's how many your offspring are going to be. How many stars? Literally thousands, millions. And he says, so Abram, your offspring shall be. Which, by the way, just as an aside, for those who were with us a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the new covenant fulfillment of these promises, who are the children of Abram? Abraham. They're those of us who believe by faith. Not the biological children of Abraham, but those who believe by faith, who have faith like their father Abraham. So what does that mean in this context now? That the number of the people of God throughout the world and throughout the ages will be as many as the stars in the sky. I say that to say sometimes the Christian church and the Christian movement can look so weak and so small and even so pathetic. It could seem like it's just a little, little candle about to go out. Don't forget the promise. The promise that is given is that God's people will number more than the stars in heaven. You could imagine brothers and sisters hiding out in Afghanistan right now as terrorists seek to snuff out any Christian presence in that land. If they were to go out at night and to look at the stars, what, would they, what could they know? God has a people, and they number more than the stars of the earth. God will have his glory in his people, and they will be millions upon millions upon millions. But I'm getting away from the passage here, okay? I just want us to appreciate this point by way of application. God is so kind and so gracious to his people to give them images like this. God is always doing this. See, he, he knows our frame. He knows that we are his dust, Psalm 103, right? He, he knows we're human. He knows what we're, what we're made of. He knows we're stuff, and he knows our weaknesses. And so what does he do? He says to Noah, you see this, this rainbow? Look at it. Study it. That's a sign for you to know that I will be a merciful God. And I won't come in judgment to overwhelm the earth with a flood ever again. It was precious in its own way after the terrible events of this past Wednesday. Did you see outside the beautiful rainbow that was over our city? A reminder that God is a merciful God. Jesus, when he was among us, did this very thing. What was he doing? He would, he would walk around. Kids, Jesus would do this. He would say, look here. Here's, here's some lilies. See these lilies? And here's a sparrow. You see that bird that's flying over there? He says, look at those things. Why does he tell us to look at those things? So that we could be helped with our anxiety. He wants us to have tangible, visible, cogent signs and symbols to help us understand the truth. God says, I take care of the flowers. I take care of the birds. You're more precious than them. I'm going to take care of you. And of course, we have a symbol before us this morning. In the bread and the cup, symbols of the body of Christ given for us, the blood of Jesus shed for us as an accommodation for our weak faith. Jesus says, take this, touch this, eat this, drink this, and remember 
I've shed my blood so that you can experience the forgiveness of sins. That's something like what God is doing here for Abram. He's saying, look up at the sky. I'm going to keep my promise. And you know that Abram never looked at the, the heavens the same way ever again. He would have this reminder day by day. Every time he would go out to look up the sky at night, God will fulfill his promises because those stars are still there in the sky. What a gracious gift from God to give us pictures and signs like that. Well, so it is here. God tells Abram, not only am I going to give you a true child, a son, an offspring, more than that, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. God doesn't here restate all of the promises that he had originally made to Abram, but he affirms the core of the promise. I'm going to give you a son, and through him, a people. That's point number two. So we've seen Abram expresses his doubts and his fears. Number two, God reasserts the promise. Now number three, and very briefly, Abram believes the promise. Abram believes the promise. And we'll look at this in greater depth next week. Verse six, we read, and he, Abram, believed the Lord, trusted the Lord, had faith in the Lord. He believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Like I said, we'll look at this in greater detail next week. Just kind of dog ear it in your Bibles for now. We read, Abram believes God, and it is counted to him as righteousness. It's reckoned to him as righteousness. It is viewed in the eyes of God as righteousness. It is credited to him, accounted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. What is required of Abram in Genesis chapter 15? You notice it's not righteousness that's required. It is faith that is counted to him as righteousness. God doesn't say, I need to have a strong track record of faithfulness and righteousness in order for me to deliver on the promises that I made to you. No, God says, I want your faith. All I ask of you, Abram, is that you believe me. And God is pleased that that faith, that belief, that trust, that genuine, sincere faith in God's promise would be counted before God as righteousness. It would be reckoned to his account as righteousness. The Lord says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to secure the promise. And all I ask of you, Abram, is that you believe me. That's it. And let me just say here, and we'll open this up next week, that is how it works for us also here in the new covenant. Faith operates in the very same way. This is how Jesus deals with us. Jesus says, I am the Son of God, fully God and fully man. I've come into the world as light that whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness. He says, I go to the cross in order to shed my blood and to die for the sins of my people. And he rises from the dead. And all that is required of vile and filthy sinners like us is that we believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that what he does in going to the cross for our sins and rising from the dead can actually secure salvation for us. We too are to have faith. And in our case as well, that faith is credited to us as righteousness. All Jesus calls sinners to do is to turn from their sin and believe on Jesus in order to be saved. John 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Not by a series of rituals, not by an unbroken string of good days, not by really mature 
great character formation? By believing, by faith, you may have life in His name. To some here, that may seem too simplistic to you. You're saying, all that's asked of me, all I bring to the table is faith, and God just does the rest? For some of you, it might sound too good to be true, but it is true. Is there any other way to understand Genesis 15, 6? Am I reading into the text? God says, I'm going to do this for you, Abram. I'm going to secure an heir for you. I'm going to keep my promise, and through him, I'm going to bring salvation and deliverance and blessing to the world. Abram believed God. I believe that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. Counted to him as righteousness. We're in no different position. Jesus says that he can save us from our sins. God has made a way in his son, the Lord Jesus, whereby we can be forgiven. He can bear our souls safely to God and deliver us from the wrath to come. Do we believe his word or not? I submit to you all that is asked of us is that we come with our faith, like our empty cup, asking him to fill it. We come to him believing, and he is pleased to give everlasting life to those who believe in him. One thing I'll note, and I'm already starting to preach my sermon for next week, which I gotta stop doing, Just one more quick observation before leaving this point. Interestingly enough, I made this statement a few weeks ago. When you read Genesis chapter 1 through 11, you're just struck by the fallenness of man and how wicked the world is. And I said then, I think, that anybody who's tempted to have an optimistic view of humanity needs to reckon with Genesis 1 through 11. It's a bleak picture. And I just find it so discouraging and even depressing to read those chapters. But but believe it or not, here in Genesis 15, this is the first time faith is mentioned in the Bible. This is the first of faith. This is the first reference, at least, to faith in the Bible. And this is one of the reasons why Abram or Abraham will be for us a paradigm for faith. God is establishing Abraham as the paradigm for what faith in the promise of God looks like. And that's why the New Testament, when it reflects on Abraham so often, highlights the significance of Abraham's faith and how faith operated in his experience. Okay, now I come to my fourth and final point before we celebrate communion together. Point number one, Abram expresses his doubts and his fears. Number two, God reasserts the promise. Number three, Abram believes the promise. And number four, God makes a covenant with Abram. God makes a covenant with Abram. Look on with me at verse seven. And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I think we're to see that as Abram asking for a sign. How am I to know? Sort of like, what sign will you give me? Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, and he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, what in the world is happening here? You kids reading along, what's going on here? Okay, so this is one of those instances where utilizing... um, Extra-biblical sources can help us. 
Because the Bible was written in a certain historical context, right? And it, it, it's written in a certain environment. And some people think that to access maybe works of history to try to understand cultural and historical things in the Bible that somehow in spiritual are wrong, I think that's, that's totally wrong-headed thinking. This is one of those areas where reading a history book to help understand the customs of the day can really help us. So here's, here's what's going on here with this mysterious ceremony. Because you can imagine you have the heifer and the female goat, the rest of the animals, and, and what Abram is asked to do is he's to cut the pieces in two, or the animal in two, and to put the carcasses on either side, split in two. So we have a, 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 a row here, a path here. It would be like that. You can imagine one half of the carcass there, one half of the carcass here. I'm sorry if you're squeamish. It's the Bible, not me. But, but, but there's a path through these animals, the body on either side, the carcasses on either side, okay? That's, that's the image. Now, now, what is that? Why would it occur to God or to… because Abram seems to understand what's going on as God does this. Why would that happen? What is that? Okay, so in the ancient world, you would sometimes have these situations where a sovereign nation, a sovereign state, sometimes referred to as a suzerain state, but a sovereign state would conquer a lesser state, what is sometimes called a vassal state. The larger nation, the sovereign nation, would conquer the lesser nation. And rather than snuffing them out, they would, they would sort of apprehend that nation, and that nation would come under the rule of the sovereign nation. And so what would happen is the, sovereign, the, the members, representatives of the sovereign nation and the lesser nation would enter into an agreement together. So maybe the sovereign nation promises, okay, look, you could have, have, have this land, this region is where your people can live, here's the boundaries of it, and uh, you'll pay taxes along this schedule, and we as the sovereign nation will provide protection and law enforcement and courts and things like that, and here's the monarch who will be over your people, and here's the governors and all that. That's what we bring to the table as part of this treaty, which the technical term for is a suzerain vassal treaty, sovereign state and a lesser state making a treaty. And then, then the lesser state would also have certain conditions they have to meet. They have to submit to the authorities of the sovereign state. They have to pay taxes on time and whatever. But there are all these conditions that both groups are going to meet. And now, granted, in this situation, it would be imposed on the lesser state. So usually the sovereign state is getting the better part of the deal. But they would make this treaty together. And then what was common in ratifying suzerain vassal treaties is you would take animals, like a heifer and a goat, etc., cut it in two, put them on either side, carcasses on either side, and the members of the treaty, those who made the agreement, would process through those broken carcasses on either side. And what they would be saying, the sovereign, the, the representative, the king, the monarch of the sovereign state, the conqueror, he would walk through. And, and so would the representative for the lesser state. And what would they be saying? If I do not keep my word and the prescriptions of this treaty and this covenant, may I be like these pieces of this animal. May I be broken. May this curse fall on me if I don't keep my word. See, there's rich symbolism here. The idea is if I don't do, is what, if I don't do what I have said and pledged that I will do, well, then, then I should be ripped apart. My body should be ripped apart. I should be broken. I should be torn apart and have the curse of this covenant. In our day and age, is 
Americans, we don't have a lot of reverence for symbols, but the Bible is laden with symbols like this. And for someone like Abram, this would have filled this whole covenant ceremony with meaning. God is saying, here are the pieces on either side. We're making a treaty. We're making a covenant. This is a formal ritual. Then we read verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. What is God talking about? Through Abram's descendants, eventually getting all the way down to Joseph, they're going to end up in the land of Egypt. After Joseph dies, the people of Israel are going to be taken into slavery in the land of Egypt. For 400 years, they will be in slavery. He's foretelling the events of the Exodus. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation, that is Egypt, that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, which they did. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's saying, I'm going to give them this land. They're going to come back to this land that you're sojourning in now, and I'm going to give it to them. Then we have verse 17. You tracking with me so far? Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, etc. Now what's missing? What's missing? Do we skip a verse? Abram doesn't walk through the pieces. This is a treaty, right? A covenant that's being made, right? Why doesn't God require Abram to pass through the pieces? Rather, this, we can only assume, a representation of God in the smoking fire pot and the torch passes through the pieces. And hereafter, by the way, in the Old Testament, even into the New, smoke and fire is very much attached to the presence of God. Hereafter, from Genesis 15 on. So we have God passing through the pieces, but, but Abram doesn't pass through them. Why not? Because God is making clear by this covenant that it will be a unilateral covenant. That all that is needed to fulfill the promises, I will do. Abram, I ask that you believe me. But everything that's needed to secure the land and the seed and the blessing and the salvation that will come to the nations, I will do. And God goes as far as to say, it's sort of mind-blowing to think that God Himself would say this. If I don't keep my word, then let this be done to me. Let me be split apart like these animals. Which, of course, can't happen to God. He doesn't have body parts like an animal. God is saying, I will keep my word. And if any curse is going to fall on anyone, if this word is broken, it will fall on me. God's word can't be broken. God alone passes through the pieces in the making of the covenant. Abram is never allowed to walk through those pieces. Because his part to play is to believe in what God has told him. 
God's part to play is to undertake, to do, and to secure everything in order that the promise might be fulfilled. What does that mean for us, members of Emmanuel Church and visitors who are here with us this morning who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are united to Him? What does this mean for us now, 41, 4,200 years later? You can be sure that you will not go to hell because God passed through the pieces. You can be certain that your sins will be forgiven because God passed through the pieces. You can know as sure as anything else in this world, even more so, that you will inherit everlasting life forever with God because God passed through the pieces. And he didn't allow Abram to pass through it. Or to use a different image, the image that's before us this morning. You can be certain, Christian. You can be sure that your sins are forgiven and that you will be forever with the Lord in perfect paradise. Because Jesus Christ has given his body and shed his blood for you. We were never permitted to go to the cross, to die the death that he died, as Abram was not permitted to walk through the pieces. All that needed to be done for your salvation has been secured for you through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. What's asked of you is that you believe him, and that you come with faith to embrace the provision that God has made for your salvation. Your good works, all your doings and all your workings will be disallowed from the equation. We are saved by grace through faith. And as Abram had to believe in the God who passed through the pieces, we must believe also in the one who has gone to the cross to secure redemption for us. All that is needed, brother, sister, for your salvation is secured for you through what God has done. And it is that that we celebrate now in our observance of communion. Let me close in prayer, and then we'll sing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, for you to require back-breaking and painstaking labor of us, for you to require years upon years in purgatory, for you to banish all of us to hell forever would be totally and completely within your right as our Creator God to whom we have rebelled so terribly. All we can say is thank you that in your love and in your grace you have not allowed that to be our fate. We thank you for every initiative of your grace, every initiative of your mercy, every initiative of your spirit to bring sinners like us in the orbit of your love and your mercy. We thank you that this is who you are, this is what you do. That as in Abram's case, you undertook to secure the promises for him, asking only for faith that you would do what you pledged to do. So you have done this for our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who of us can comprehend what it cost you to secure our salvation, to atone for our transgressions, 
Father, how we thank you that you have had pity on our poor case, that you have sent your own Son into the world to die in our place, that we might be saved, that we might be pardoned, that we might have everlasting life in him. Lord, I don't know why Annie would not embrace this grace and forgiveness that is offered in Christ. Please move upon each heart here to believe, to have saving faith in what you have done in making a way of salvation and offering up your Son as a provision for all those who would have everlasting life and want their sins forgiven. Would you come by your Spirit and give the gift of faith to all of us to lay hold of your promise, to lay hold of what you have achieved through your Son. We pray that something would come through in a special way, a mysterious way, an intangible way, but that something would come through even now as we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, as we contemplate our Lord's death. May we see something of, of His death for us, and may it appear more lovely and bright and attractive and, and the answer and the solution for our sins than it ever has before. Do that for sinners in this place. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.